it is impossible to know where the threat will come from and it's impossible to know how that threat manifests itself. So therefore, one has to build a network that is capable of defending or being resilient, as we call it. How do you recover from an attack and not go down? How do you not wind up in the newspaper? It turns out we human beings have figured that out in the physical world. This is Kotecki on Tech. I am James Kotecki here with Ray Rothrock, the CEO of Red Seal. Ray, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So Red Seal is a cybersecurity company, and this is maybe weird to say, maybe not the first time you've heard this. Ray Rothrock sounds like a very CEO of a web security company kind of name. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that. I So for 25 years, I was a, a general partner at Venrock. So I was uh, Ray Rothrock from Venrock, a lot of rocks in there. And I worked for the Rockefeller family. So there you go. Wow. Okay. So yeah, you're definitely one of those people whose like name has like subconsciously shaped your destiny, I suppose. I think so. Uh, so Red Seal is a cybersecurity company. And when I looked at your website recently, it said you are, quote, trusted by all four branches of the military, the world's most trusted financial institutions, power grid companies, and mission critical government agencies. So Ray, without necessarily naming names, given the business that you're in, what's an example of a way that you help a client? Our clients are large enterprises with very complicated networks, network infrastructure. They have wired, wireless clouds, um, uh, IoT. They have all kinds of stuff. And uh, the software that Red Seal produces in, takes in, ingests all the technical information about how those things talk to each other. Uh, it's called routing. And switching, and we take all that in, and we punch it into our algorithms, and it can take anywhere from two minutes to two hours to sometimes two days, depending upon the size and complexity of the network, to basically create a map. You can say, so, uh, for example, in talking about the military, uh, do any of my trusted secure networks talk to any untrusted insecure networks? Uh, do I have, you know, are this? Uh, do I have secret? clearance networks talking to non-secret clearance networks. So sometimes just understanding the pathway from point A to point B gives you amazing insight into whether or not you've configured and are operating your network correctly. As we know, everything's become digital. Everything is digital. In the case of military or the three-letter intel agencies, they're constantly moving uh, secret information around and stuff, and they need to make sure it's moving properly from point A to point B. That is the core use case that we do. We test the government's networks, the agency networks, the congressional networks even, and the, and the executive branch networks to find out if they're in compliance. And that is the number one thing we do. And it turns out most people are not in compliance, or if they are out of compliance, we also, the software will indicate how to bring it into compliance. I'm not sure how much you're allowed to say about this or how much you want to say about this, given uh, your kind of marketing and business priorities. But how vulnerable is the U.S. government? How vulnerable is the U.S. military? You're mapping these connections and you mentioned that many people and many organizations are not in compliance. Uh, how afraid should we be as citizens who depend on these services? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> uh, look, um, I'll answer it this way. Uh, no network is perfect. And the amount of imperfection sort of depends upon the age and the skills of the people that have operationalized that network and what the current threat environment looks like. 
nothing is perfect, but we are getting a lot better at it. One of the things that we have done is automate this process so that it doesn't take a bunch of human beings in there to do it all the time. We're getting better at that. And I think as automation, AI, and machine learning sort of technologies get deployed in cyber, cyber will get better faster than we can imagine. You probably know this, James, but there's a massive shortage of human beings to run all this software that the mm -hmm. world has created. Yeah. Anybody listening to this is going to be thinking about the news and the headlines around, are we safe? Are we, you know, the yeah. headlines I read are like, not only are we not safe, we're less safe than ever. And we haven't really done anything significant to prevent kind of another um, social yeah. engineering attack by the Russians or something, you know, significantly worse. If you look at the news about voting machines and how insecure they are, especially in electronic cases in many parts of the country, that doesn't really make me uh, very optimistic no. about the future of election security. So it's very challenging. Yeah, we may be going back to paper ballots at some level because um, it is all about trust. Our democracy is about trust. And if we lose that trust, lose that faith, uh, we, we're at risk. Does the future of cyber warfare, does the new cold wars, so to speak, does that basically look like, you know, my AI versus your AI? You know, I'm doing everything I can to secure my network through uh, artificial intelligence and automation and also kind of exploit weaknesses in yours. And then you are doing the same to me in the other direction. And it just kind of becomes a battle of whose AI is the best. Absolutely. It's a uh, mutual assured destruction at some level. Um, you know, as soon as a new threat comes out, we have to invent uh, a solution against that. One of the one of the tenets of Red Seal, one of the reasons why I'm here is it is impossible to know where the threat will come from. and It is impossible to know how that threat manifests itself. So therefore, one has to build a network that is capable of defending or being resilient, as we call it. How do you recover from an attack and not go down? How do you not wind up in the newspaper? It turns out we human beings have figured that out in the physical world. You're sitting, I don't know where you are exactly, but in my building here, I'm staring at some sprinkler systems on the wall. I see some uh, exit signs. I see uh, you know, a smoke alarm. So, so do I expect this building to burn? No. Then why they put smoke? Uh, why they put sprinklers in it? They put sprinklers in it because just in case. That concept is a new concept in the cyber world, particularly in the commercial cyber world. So we are having our soft, my software, because it can visualize and completely map your entire network. It can help you figure out where to put that sprinkler, where to put that exit sign, where to put that extra fire door, so forth and so forth. And that is what the world has come to. Why is this building got all this stuff in it? Because the law has been passed, building codes, inspectors, all that stuff exists in our physical world, does not yet exist in the cyber world. And so I, am real, I wrote a book last year called Digital Resilience, and it's all about how to be prepared, how to become resilient. Nothing's perfect. Software changes, the threats evolve, but you can indeed be prepared for when your building catches on fire. The idea of resilience is an interesting one, and it reminds me of a history I read of the Cold War about the way that the United States government was thinking about how to uh, make uh, citizens and the government resilient in the uh, case of a nuclear strike. So the idea is you don't necessarily, you do everything you can, obviously, to prevent the strike from happening, but you're also, in the case of the government in the Cold War, doing things like building bunkers and creating contingency plans of who might be in charge if certain people are taken out of the out of commission and things like that. Is that kind of how you see resilience, the idea that you have to prepare in case you 
are attacked, you don't just do things to protect yourself from getting attacked. That's exactly right. You, you put your finger on it. So there are a lot of things you can do to, pre- to prevent or uh, to, to prevent, uh, you know, I call it uh, protection and detection. That's what's been the, the thesis of cybersecurity since the Internet came along. Uh, these networks are huge and complex. The U.S. Post Office, for example, has 5,000 pieces of routing equipment in their network. I'm sorry, 50, 50,000. 50, that's, that's no human being can understand it, so you need technology to understand it. But then you also do things like segment. Uh, a, a very effective resilience strategy is to segment. So break your network into small pieces. Most people that built their network in the, seriously, most companies that built their network in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years uh, until most recently uh, had sort of like one firewall entry point and the network was called flat. It was just like you walked into a giant room with no walls and doors and windows, just a massive room, and everybody could hear everybody else, and everybody could see everybody else. Go to a hotel sometime, log on to their network, and you'll see everybody in all the other rooms unless they've taken the trouble to segment it. And that's where we are. So that's a, 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 a typical resilience trait, and that's, by the way, what we did in the Cold War. We segmented things, right? We put the missiles away from the de- command decision. We put – Bunkers in certain places. We created a, a call tree, uh, a designated survivor. That whole concept comes from all of that thinking. Um, all the all the while, we we're spending equal amounts of money to pr- protect and defend, in addition to being prepared. So even if I imagine the most secure building in the world, one of the most secure buildings in the world, probably the Pentagon. Theoretically, a person or a small team of people can probably intuitively get a sense of how secure it is. You can count the number of doors on the architectural blueprints and see the secret basement or whatever they've got under the building. And you you can probably figure all that stuff out and intuitively understand it and grasp it as a human being. And what you're saying is for even something like the post office, which is we don't think of as the most secure organization in the world, although it still needs some security, it's way too complex digitally for anybody to understand. So I guess that's one of the fundamental differences. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And in this, think about cyber. So if you walked into a giant room when there's a thousand people working, you have a sense of whether it's secure or not, right? Mm-hmm. I can hear conversations or whatever. But you walk into a building that's, uh, you know, uh, an old New England home has got a lot of rooms, uh, whereas a sort of a modern New England home doesn't. Has usually has a great room. These are different concepts and stuff. So you see that, you understand cyber. There's no way to know, no way to know. Uh, like say you can go to a hotel and open up your, your network window and you might see hundreds of machines. You might see no machines. It depends on how they've installed it. Again, there are no standards. There's no compliance requirements. Hotels don't have to do it a certain way. There was a wonderful article last month in, in uh, Bloomberg about a red team that went to the Four Seasons in New York and for days held up in a room, couldn't cracking in until one day they saw a USB port on the side of a curtain. And when they plugged into that USB port, that curtain was electronic, digitally connected to the hotel network, and they got all the way to corporate. That's just how – and my, our software, Red Seal, would have found that port and would have found that problem. But unless you run our software, you, it's very difficult to account for. And guess what? How many rooms in that hotel? I don't know, 300, 500? How many curtains? Thousand. So how many access points is that you didn't know about? And, you know, that's called the attack surface, and the attack surface is huge. And if I could just go to another step. So IoT, this notion of Internet of Things, it's now billions. This attack surface is getting bigger, not smaller. In the military, they tell you, you want to, you know, uh, 
You want to have the smallest attack surface so when you're shot at, there's a higher probability you'll survive. We seem to be making our attack surfaces huge, which means the threats have a higher chance of getting in. It seems like it's certainly a great time to be in your business. But <laughs> overall, should I, as just a, a citizen of this country and a person trying to live my life in this economy, be more optimistic or less optimistic? When I've talked to other cybersecurity folks, I don't walk away from those conversations with a great deal of overall optimism for you know a more secure future for my kids who are <laughs> five and two, for example, about the, the world and the internet that they're going to be working on. So how yeah. do you think about this overall, just from the point of view of a, of a person in this economy? Well, I'm, I'm actually more optimistic than maybe many people uh, you talk to. I'm, I'm very optimistic. Uh, one, uh, uh, there's an acknowledgement of leadership. Uh, I'm sorry, there's an acknowledgement by leadership that we have a problem. Cyber is now in boardrooms, something I've been advocating my whole, for, I, I did 15 cyber deals while at Venrock out of the 53 that I did there. And cyber was down in the basement, off in the corner. Now it's in the boardroom. I'm getting, Ray Rothrock with my book, I'm getting called into public boards to give them a short lecture on how to think and frame up the problem of cyber. Uh, budgets are growing faster in cyber than anywhere else. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, that money should be used to make better products. But for the time being, it's going to be used to secure what we have. Um, but I'm optimistic um, because there are way more many good guys than there are bad guys. And, uh, you know, just like credit card fraud and theft, we figured out how to deal with that in an effective way. And we get better at it all the time. And we will do the same thing here. We, we will ultimately spend the money to segment protect, detect, and then be resilient. That is, have our fire department ready to go uh, in due course. Uh, we, we just will because we're human beings and, and that's how we think about things. So I'm actually optimistic about it. Will it get worse before it gets better? Eh, there'll be more Capital Ones. There'll be more Equifaxes. But you know, let's face it, um, I haven't detected my Equifax stuff being used yet. Have you? Not that I'm sh going to be careless. Do you think we need to have a fundamental shift in the way that people engage with and think about other people in the world because of the threats of things like phishing? I've talked to others about, you know, deep fake technology could even, you know, one day pretty soon make a convincing facsimile of my CEO on a video call or something like that. And now I see a video of a guy that I know asking me to wire some money to something. Um, do you think it requires uh, – is, is this just a tweak or do we have to kind of rewire something about how we socially interact with each other or about human nature in order to deal with these emerging threats? Yes, we have to have a fundamental shift. And you, you bring up a great one because uh, it is happening. Uh, we here at my company have received phone calls from a voice uh, that sounded like me that said we needed to wire some money from point A to point B. Um, that is, you know, uh, first of all, I, you know, that, that's out of character for me to do that, but, but nonetheless, uh, you need to be a little skeptical. So you need to have safe words. I'm sure you're familiar with that concept or, uh, dual factor. And like I say, if, and just be skeptical. If anyone asks you to do anything that that's just out of the ordinary, you should double check it, pick up the phone and call them for goodness sake. If you're just be a little skeptical, I think the, I think that we, you know, look, uh, because we can't see the cyber, we don't understand its reach and potential. And in the last, I'm going to say, 15 years, we have highly digitized our world. 
And we did it as fast as we could and as cheap as we could. And, and in hindsight, we should have been more careful, but you just can't stop people. We're going to do things like we want to do them. But we also need to educate and teach our children to be a little more skeptical about their their digital uh, footprint. Look, uh, I don't know about you, but I was taught to clean my fingernails and comb my hair and you know put my shirt tail in before I went to school. There's no reason why we can't teach kids, change your passwords. If something looks fishy, it probably is. Don't believe everything you read. These are just things we ought to, we ought to teach kids more effectively at early ages. And we should teach adults that too. Ray Rothrock, CEO of Red Seal. I appreciate your combination of optimism and a little skepticism to go with that. So thanks for being on the show today. Uh, James, thank you very much. And uh, remember, change your password. Yeah. <laughs>